I'm Josh Escovito with Weintraub Tobin. And I'm Scott Hervey with Weintraub Tobin. The jury, hearing the Hermes versus Rothschild's case, found Rothschild liable for trademark infringement and trademark dilution. The matter went to trial after the judge dismissed both Hermes and Rothschild's motions for summary judgment. Should the court have sent this matter to the jury? And what may be in store for an appeal? We are going to discuss this case on this next installment of The Briefing by the IP Law Blog. Mason Rothschilds is an artist who created a series of digital artworks called Metaburkins. The artist claims that each work comments on the Hermes Birkin handbag, that it's a unique, fanciful interpretation of the Birkin bag. Rothschilds claims that the depiction of each bag as fur-covered comments on the animal cruelty inherent in Hermes' manufacturing of its ultra-expensive leather handbags. Rothschilds has over 100 pieces of art in the collection and has sold over $1.1 million worth of NFTs. Hermes filed suit in January 2022, alleging trademark infringement and trademark dilution. In response, Rothschild moved to dismiss, relying heavily on Rogers versus Grimaldi. The court denied Rothschild's motion because the amended complaint included sufficient allegations that Rothschild entirely intended to associate the Meta Birkin's mark with the popularity and goodwill of the Hermes Birkin mark rather than intending an artistic association. Shortly thereafter, both parties moved for summary judgment. Although the court found that Hermes claims should be analyzed under the Rogers test, the court found that a genuine issue of material fact remained as to whether under the Rogers test, Rothschild's NFTs infringe and or dilute Hermes's trademarks. The Rogers court held that where the defendant's product is artistic or expressive, the Lanham Act must be interpreted narrowly in order to avoid suppressing protected speech under the First Amendment. The two parts of the Rogers test are artistic relevancy and whether the use of the mark is explicitly misleading. Citing to a 2012 Southern District of New York case, Louis Vuitton versus Warner Brothers, the artistic relevance prong of the Rogers test ensures that the defendant intended an artistic, i.e. non-commercial association with the plaintiff's mark, as opposed to one in which the defendant intends to associate with the mark to exploit the mark's popularity and goodwill. Under Rogers, however, a showing of artistic relevance is easily satisfied. It is met unless the use of the mark has no artistic relevance to the underlying work whatsoever, and was instead chosen merely to exploit the publicity value of the plaintiff's mark or brand. This court, the Rothschilds court, in denying the cross motions for summary judgment, said that there is a genuine factual issue as to whether Rothschild's decision to center his work around the Birkin bag stemmed from a genuine artistic expression or rather from an unlawful intent to cash in on a highly exclusive and uniquely valuable brand name. The court's order cited to Rothschild's comments to investors that he doesn't think people realize how much you can get away with in art by saying in the style of, and that he was in the rare position to bully a multi-billion dollar corporation as being probative of an intent to exploit. Right. And this was despite the fact that the court, recognizing that 
Rogers applied, and also recognizing the existence of evidence which suggested that Rothschilds viewed the project as a vehicle to comment on the Birkenbag's influence on modern society. Josh, to me, it seems that the court may have evaluated the weight or veracity of the artistic relevance proffered by Rothschilds. Yes, Hermes offered evidence tending to show that Rothschilds' intent was to make money and, quote, capitalize on the hype, close quote. But does that mean that every artist has to take a vow of poverty in order not to infringe on somebody else's trademark? I, I don't think that the court could could do this. In Dillinger versus Electronic Arts, the Ninth Circuit said, quote, it's not the role of the court to determine how meaningful the relationship between a trademark and the content of a literary work must be. Consistent with Rogers, any connection whatsoever is enough for the court to determine that the mark's use meets the appropriately low threshold of minimal artistic relevance. So Josh, I ask you in, in in taking into account the few things that Rothschild said about making money off of the the release of this series, uh, but also acknowledging the statements that Rothschild made and, and taking them as true, that he had an artistic intent related to the use of the Hermes trademark. Uh, did the court do the right thing here? Well, Scott, as a matter of procedure, it does seem as if there is a dispute of material fact, or at least dispute of a fact. And that fact seems to be whether Rothschild's true intent was to capitalize off of Hermes's goodwill, uh, or if it was to comment and provide some sort of, sort of social commentary. Uh, because we do have those two positions at odds with one another. And under the summary judgment standard, if there is a dispute of material fact, then the court has to send the matter on to the trier of fact to make a decision. Now, what that really means is we, or it's on the court to decide whether this issue is material or not. And in order to determine whether this dispute of fact is a material fact, the court is required to determine whether in light of the Rogers test, the comments that Rothschild made concerning uh, his intent are even consequential to the analysis. Yeah, I hear I hear what you're saying, um, but I don't know that the court. I don't know that the court should have considered Rothschild's statements that he wanted to make money off of this release once he proffered evidence, which the court found to have veracity, that he intended an artistic statement. Um, so one, I mean, granted the Dillinger case is a Ninth Circuit case, not a Second Circuit case, but assuming there's a, an applicable Second Circuit case that says the same thing, um, it's not the role of the court to determine how meaningful the relationship between the trademark and the content of an artistic work must be. Meaning that if if Rothschild's proffered evidence, which met this low threshold of minimal artistic relevance, despite the fact that he may have also intended or wanted to make money off of the release. And by the way, what artist doesn't want to make money? To think that an artist doesn't want to make money off of a release is nuts. I mean, you know, artists nowadays don't take vows of poverty. So 
Um, I just think the court should not have, like once Rogers proffered evidence, which they found to be true, that he intended artistic meaning. And if the court found that it met the low threshold of minimal artistic relevance, I believe that should have been the end of the inquiry. Um, but let's go on. Uh, because I think you know that's one of the issues that's going to be up on appeal. But even where the use of the trademark bears some artistic relevance to an underlying um, artistic work, the First Amendment does not protect such use if it is explicitly misleading. So if it explicitly misleads as to the source or the content of the work. And a work is explicitly misleading if it induces members of the public to believe that it was created or otherwise authorized by the plaintiff. In the Second Circuit, this determination is made by the application of the Polaroid factors. Um, and by the way, it's different from the Ninth Circuit because the Ninth Circuit does not apply uh, the Polaroid or Sleekcraft factors. Um, as the Second Circuit said in Twin Peaks Productions, uh, the opinion which by the way, was written by the same judge who wrote the Rogers opinion. He said, if after applying the Polaroid, the Polaroid factors, a likelihood of confusion is found, it must be particularly compelling to outweigh the First Amendment interest recognized in Rogers. It must be particularly compelling. The Rothschilds court said, because there remains substantial factual disagreements between the parties with respect to many, if not most of the eight Polaroid factors, any of which could be dispositive on the outcome, the court declines to grant summary judgment for either party on this issue. Does this, Josh, to you, does this sound like the court kept in mind what the circuit, Second Circuit said in Twin Peaks, that if there is evidence of likelihood of confusion, that likelihood of confusion must be particularly compelling? I think it's really hard to say, Scott. I mean, I think it really comes down to how the court interpreted particularly compelling, because I suppose the court could have looked at those statements and said, well, we find it particularly compelling that uh, Rothschild made these statements, which seem to be indicative of an intent to mislead consumers. At least the court could have said that. Again, I think we have to keep in mind the procedural posture and the fact that it is a motion for summary judgment. So perhaps the court said, this may be compelling to one trier of fact. It may not be compelling to another trier of fact. So we can't engage in that balancing at this time. It really is hard to say. Um, I can tell you that the Second Circuit is going to look at it and likely opine on whether they think uh, this was particularly compelling. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I mean, in Rogers versus Grimaldi, the court gave some examples of what would constitute explicitly uh, misleading, uh, such as the book title, uh, Nimmer on copyright for a treatise that was not authored by Nimmer or Jane Fonda's workout book for a book Jane Fonda had nothing to do with. Now, you know, going to the actual evidence that was in front of the court at the motions for summary judgment, um, I just don't see them. I don't see the evidence that Hermes offered meeting that burden of being particularly compelling. Hermes pointed to a study of commission that found that 18.7% percent net confusion rate among potential con uh, consumers of NFTs and noted some third-party social media posts, which mistakenly assumed an association. Uh, and the fact that a single IP lawyer in Paris 
wrongly stated that Hermes and Rothschilds collaborated on the Meta Birkins NFT project. And according to Hermes, his lawyer thought that because the name of the NFTs included uh, the name, the trademark Birkin and reproduced the shapes of the bag. Obviously, I don't think that lawyer did her his or her research, but nonetheless, Rothschilds pointed out uh, the fact that he never made any affirmative statements linking the project and him to Hermes or saying that it was sponsored by them. And when several publications mistakenly reported an affiliation between Hermes and his Metabrican project, um, Rothschild's publicist contacted these publications and asked them to issue corrections regarding the mistaken affiliation. And then Rothschild included a disclaimer. I mean, granted, it was after he received the cease and desist from Hermes, but he included a disclaimer on uh, the project website. So, I mean, I don't think that this rises to the level of explicitly misleading as to the source or content of the work. And I, that's a legal, like, that's a, that's a question of law. Um, it's not a question of fact. Um, and I don't know, I, think the, I don't think the court got it right. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting question. You know, I don't know that we can look to the evidence of actual confusion or or arguable confusion, which is much of what was just discussed, and try to make a determination of whether the work was exp explicitly or expressly misleading. Of course, those pieces of evidence would tend to show that there was confusion. But I think that the explicitly misleading analysis requires the trier of fact to take a look at what was actually done by the defendant and whether the confusion was intended. And, and I don't think that Rothschild's statements probably sat well with the court to that end, but it's it really is a, a bit of a murky issue because we do have these statements where it seems as if he is trying to create some sort of association or or to utilize their goodwill. On the other hand, he mentions that he is trying to create social commentary on animal cruelty. And I think this is one of the things that we really need clarity on from the court in the VIP products matter that is currently pending uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, dealing with the Rogers test and the interplay of the First Amendment and trademark infringement, because this is a situation where we have some statements that seem to indicate that there may have been some confusion or somebody may have been misled, but we also have an attempt at social commentary. So it would be nice to have some clarity concerning uh, how courts are supposed to deal with these situations. And perhaps with that clarity, we would also see a reduction uh, in the amount of these cases. I think we do need some clarity, Josh, because I'm afraid that this ruling might chill um, might chill artistic speech and might chill the efforts of artists who want to make commentary about our everyday brands and their effect on society. Like take, for example, the famous Andy Warhol Campbell soup painting. Um, According to my research, you know, Andy Warhol, when he painted this, he wanted to connect art with everyday life. Okay. So he had an artistic, there was an artistic uh, meaning, or there was artistic relevance. I'm pretty certain Andy Warhol did not take a vow of poverty. And Andy Warhol, you know, wanted to make money uh, with his work. I mean, who doesn't endeavor 
to make money. Um, maybe monks, uh, but you know, there's very few people who go into life with a profession and are trying to make some uh, make a living out of it. Um, so the mere fact that Andy Warhol wanted to make uh, make a living, uh, wanted to make money, on uh, the fact that he used the Campbell Soup brand in his art, you know, some dummies or not dummies might have thought that Campbell Soup somehow was affiliated with this or approved this. I mean, does that then mean that Andy Warhol can't rely on the Rogers test and this goes to a jury who maybe can't understand the complexity of the Rogers test and the Polaroid factors and finds him liable? I don't, I don't think so. I, I just think that this court got it wrong. And I think that the jury got it wrong. Um, I don't know if you agree with me. Uh, it's, it's really hard for me to say, you know, because I keep thinking about the fact that we have this pending case before the Supreme Court. And so it seems like, sure, it may be correct today, or it may be incorrect today. But in a couple of months, once we have these new decisions from the Supreme Court, uh, that determination may be different. So that that's something that just weighs heavily on my mind when I'm thinking about the merits of this case. Yeah, I understand that. I I, I understand that the, the pending VIP case will or could um, have quite an impact on Rogers. And I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I do hope there's an appeal uh, on this case um, because I think there are a number of things in my opinion, I'm going to go out on the limb and say, in, in my opinion, I think that the court and the uh, trier of fact got it wrong. I think that uh, Rogers, uh, obviously the court believed that Rogers was applicable. And I think that Rothschild's motion for summary judgment should have been granted. I don't think that Hermes, um, I think I think, I think Rothschild's established artistic relevance. And I don't think Hermes um, introduced enough evidence to show that there was some type of expressly misleading statement or that Rothschild's use of the Birkin mark expressly misleads as to the source or content of the work. And not to mention, uh, I think the court got it wrong as to Hermes' dilution claim. You know, in Jack Daniels, in the VIP case, it held that uh, non-commercial use of a mark is expressly excluded from being actionable as blurring or tarnishment. And in the in that case, the court said that speech speech that is non-commercial uh, or speech is non-commercial if it does more than propose a commercial transaction and that the use of a mark may be non-commercial even if it is used to sell a product. Um, the fact that the court allowed her May's dilution claim to go forward, I think this was wrong. So um, I hope that Rothschild's appeals to the Second Circuit. Uh, and I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see. But again, I'm gonna go out on the limb and say that uh, this court got it wrong. I suspect we will see an appeal here. Uh, I, I don't know that we'll be waiting long for that. Um, and while I'm not quite willing to go out on a limb and take uh, a position on, on the jury's verdict, uh, Scott, I just, for the sake of playing the devil's advocate, I, I would say that the court may have gotten the ruling on the motion for summary judgment correct, just because it does seem like there is no disputed issue of material fact as to artistic relevancy. I would agree with that. Uh, but on the explicitly misleading prong, I think that there's probably sufficient evidence, even with 
the Second Circuit authority that provides, you know, some level of of persuasive evidence that must be established. I still think that some of the statements and some of the other evidence may have been sufficient to get past a motion for summary judgment. Now, I'm not certain that they should have been sufficient for the jury to find against Rothschild. I will not take a position on that at the moment, but that's that's kind of where I land on this. But let's definitely stay locked in on this case and, and follow it through the Second Circuit. Like I said, I think the Supreme Court's rulings that are coming down will certainly weigh on the Second Circuit's uh, decision, assuming this is appealed. So let's keep an eye on it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to because this case makes it per almost impossible to give a client an analysis based on Rogers. Um, if you think about it, like how do you how do you then counsel a television production company that wants to include third party brands in its television show for the purpose of creating you know a a realistic world for the viewers and its characters to live in? Um, I mean, you know, product placement is all over the place, and you know a, a a consumer might think, oh, that was product placement. Does that mean that um, that there was, you know, that that does that equal expressly misleading? And the fact that the producer wanted to make money because they sold this television show to a network, does that does does that cancel out the artistic uh, intent? It's just creates a just a a bed of thorns when it comes to trying to advise clients on on a matter that that Rogers would be applicable to. So we do, we definitely need some clarity. That's interesting, Scott. You know, the one wrinkle on that particular issue with a television show and, and generally applicable to a number of other works as well, is that if it's the intent of the defendant or the presumed defendant to profit off of a show or off of their work, but the intent to profit isn't expressly tied to the plaintiff's product, brand, or goodwill, then I think it's still okay under the Rogers test because the Rogers test is concerning itself with whether a party is attempting to expressly mislead a viewer into believing there's an association and therefore allowing the defendant to profit as a result of the plaintiff's goodwill. So again, you know, if it's an intent to profit off of a television show, a work of art, a book, so long as it is not an intent to profit off of the plaintiff's brand or goodwill, I think it's fine under the Rogers test. Yeah, I mean, you do raise a good point there, Josh. Uh, one of the things that we did see in the Rogers case was, as you may remember, um, Hermes was able to get past the um, demur stage by making an allegation in the complaint that the intent was to profit off of the brand. So, you know, what that then entails is everybody spending a bunch of money to go to motions for summary judgment. So, yes, you in the end, you might be it would end up being you'd be correct, but you're spending a lot of money. Uh, but, hey, I mean, I guess, you know, we just need to make our clients aware of that. Um, so, you know, we'll be watching this real closely because it definitely it definitely uh, is a big mess now. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Scott. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for tuning into this installment of The Briefing by the IP Law Blog. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel, leave a positive review, and don't forget to visit our website for additional content at theiplawblog.com. Thank you.